Good morning, TLC. And happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Um, all right, so check it. This is what we're going to do this morning, all right? So it's going to be a little different. Um, I have a very uh, nuanced and actually technical passage to engage with this morning that I would love to take about 45 minutes to walk into and explain, but instead I'm going to try to do it in about 10 to 12 minutes, okay? So I'm going to take something very nuanced uh, uh, and technical, and I'm going to try to break it down into two very uh, simple, but I think helpful principles that we find in the text. And then I'm going to use uh, the rest of the time, not 45 minutes, but to do something that will be way more uh, um, fun and uh, inspirational um, that actually follows from the text right after what we're going to look at. Now, before we dive into it, though, I want to show you a couple pictures of my local group, my small group, okay? So this is the first one. Uh, this is uh, Eric uh, on uh, the left-hand side. Uh, next to him is Sarah, and behind Sarah is Ben. Ben and Sarah are married. Uh, I think I can say it. They're expecting their first, which is pretty exciting. Um, they just announced that. Uh, behind uh, Ben is Callie. Uh, looking sassy as always, and uh, right over Ben's left kind of shoulder, that's Brian, uh, Callie's husband, and next to Brian is David. I'll show you a couple more pictures of them in just a second. Uh, so uh, Brian's holding the Jesus juice, okay, and David's in the gray. Just remember those two names. I'll come back to them in a second. And then the last picture is, oh, uh, that's my wife, y'all. That's Brenda, my wife, uh, and that's Eric and Emily, who you're going to actually interact with a little bit later as well. Now, uh, why did I show you these pictures of my local group? I showed you these pictures because um, there's a few laws that were on the books in the last hundred years that would have had massive ramifications for the people that I know and love in that group. I'm going to share a couple of them with you, Okay. First one, Nebraska, 1911. Marriages are void when one party is a white person and the other is possessed of one-eighth or more Negro, Japanese, or Chinese blood. There's a law right here in our country, Nebraska, 1911. Uh, my wife is Filipino. If there were actually Filipinos living in Nebraska as a woman of Asian descent, they would have added that to the list. And my marriage to my wife would have been considered null and void. Your pastor would be living in sin. 1935, Nazi Germany voided any marriages between Jews and Aryans in Germany. David, who was in the gray shirt that you saw earlier, is Jewish. His wife is Dutch, or as the Germans would have considered her, Aryan, and his marriage would have been null and voided all the rights and protections that would have come. It gets, of course, worse. In 1938, a law was enacted in Nazi Germany that made it legal to violently rob Jewish persons. Yes, you heard that right. Violently rob, that was legal. So David, who's Jewish, my brother in Christ, my friend, were he living just 80 years ago in Germany, would have been able to have been violently robbed. I want to show you a picture 
Um, this is from uh, one in Ann Arbor. You'll actually find these all over the nation. Uh, these are called restrictive real estate covenants. Okay, so these are actually connected to current deeds of homes in Ann Arbor. You'll see number eight, no part of said land shall be occupied by persons not of the Caucasian race except as guests or servants. Uh, that's another one right below it, no persons of any race other than the Caucasian race shall use or occupy any building or any lot except that this covenant shall not prevent occupancy by domestic servants of a different race. In other words, the only people that you are allowed to sell to or that could own those homes were white people. Uh, these actually uh, popped up uh, throughout the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, even into the 60s, all over the nation in housing developments that were being made. And that means that my brother, my good friend, who is also in my local group, Brian, the one who was holding the Jesus juice, would not have been able to buy any of those homes, wouldn't have been able to live in them, unless he was my servant. Sounds like those are like so distant in the past, um, but in 2005, there was actually a case that came up because one of these deeds was actually still on the books for a home in Georgia, and the person who owned it did not want to sell to someone who was not white. Back in 1968, the FHA outlawed the law, but these deeds and this language still sits on many homes, even currently. So... These are not actually even the worst laws enacted by governments. This is just a smattering of uh, a couple of governments in the last century that I wanted to make you aware of because they would have intimate, devastating implications for people in my local group from this church, people that I love, people that I care about, people that are my brothers and sisters in Christ. But there are worse laws that have been, acted, have been enacted uh, where rape was legal in our own country, chattel slavery was allowed, other countries where there was actual extermination of people groups. So my question this morning is, should we submit to these laws and the governments that passed them? Should we submit to these laws and the governments that passed them? Seems like maybe at first blush a dumb question, an easy question, but let's see what God's word has to say to us this morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. We're going to engage in verses 1 through 7 in our first couple of minutes. Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this. Let everyone be subject or under the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong, excuse me, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit 
to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So I will ask the question a second time. Should we submit to the laws that I mentioned a little while ago and the governments that passed them? Do you feel a little icky right now? Do you feel a little tension? What does God's word say? There are two principles that help us understand this text, okay? The principles are this, the pinnacle principle and the purge principle. I will explain the principles to you as much as I would like to spend 45 minutes unpacking all that Paul is saying, why he's saying it, I'm going to simplify it down into just a couple of minutes with two principles that hopefully allow us to deal with the obvious tension we feel from the passage, all right? The question, of course, is how do we reconcile those laws and what Paul says? especially when Paul says in verse 1 that we're supposed to be subject or under the governing authorities, and in verse 5 when Paul commands that we submit to the governing authorities. How do we reconcile those two things? Well, the pinnacle principle helps us by stating that God is the highest authority, period. Okay? Verse 5 actually helps us gain some perspective. It's in verse 5 that Paul actually says that we are supposed to submit to the governing authorities. Now, it's interesting that Paul uses the word submit and not obey. We often take those two words and we combine them or see them as synonymous, but that is not the case in Paul's understanding. For Paul, the word submit actually means that there is a hierarchy, okay? And at the pinnacle of the hierarchy for the Christian is, of course, God himself, and so the pinnacle principle reminds us that God is at the highest point of any organizational or authority structure. Therefore, when it comes to rules that go against God's word and God's will, we always follow God, not the governing authority. All right? So... Hopefully that at least allows us to step back and realize that Paul wasn't saying that you're just supposed to do whatever it is that any authority figure in your life tells you to do. The pinnacle principle helps us understand that God is the highest authority. So uh, we see Dr. Doug Moo, he says this, by implicit, uh, excuse me, but implicit, always in the idea of submission, is the need to recognize that God is at the pinnacle of any hierarchy. Paul assumes that one's ultimate submission must be to God and that no human being can ever stand as the ultimate authority for a believer. Now, we are supposed to submit to the governing authorities, all right, anytime that they're asking us to do something that doesn't contradict or go against God's word or God's will. Now, I do understand that in, even in our own country, it was actually God's word that was used to prop up unbiblical, unjust, terrible, unethical, anti-God laws. So it matters how we engage with God's word. You'd think 
in a Bible that says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, it would be very obvious that we shouldn't own other human beings. However, we have not always done a great job of engaging God's word, and even less so God's will. So I recognize that there are still going to be moments where we have to interpret, right, together, which is why it's so important to have a community, to engage in what is God's word saying and what is God's will as connected to God's word. That's why you have to be very careful in judging fellow followers of Jesus that live in societies under governments that are very different from ours. Without having that intimate understanding and experience, it's really easy to sit sometimes in our crystal cathedrals and make judgments on someone else. We don't want to do that. God's word, God's will. So the pinnacle principle is that God's at the top, all right? So if you've got a government that's trying to tell you to do something that goes against God's word and God's will, then you should not obey it. Number two is the purge principle. This is a very terrible uh, name for this principle. I gave it the name. Nobody else did. It actually comes from a movie called The Purge. Any of you ever seen The Purge? Ah, a number of you. All right? You have no shame because you literally said that in church. You just admitted. I actually have not seen the movies. However, I do know the premise of the movies. And the only reason I haven't seen it is not because I'm holier than thou, it's just simply I'm too afraid of horror movies. I can't do it. I'm just too afraid of them. The Purge is all about a time in the future when America is being ruled by the NFFA, which is the New Founding Fathers of America, all right? And what they have done is they have set up a society that they think is actually going to be best for everybody, but they know that we all still struggle with these base desires to do bad things. And so therefore, if we could create 12 hours every year where there is complete and utter lawlessness, all right, no laws are enacted, no police do anything, nobody helps, no government agencies, everything is a free-for-all for 12 hours that will kind of let people get it out of their system, and then the rest of the year, everybody will be better. Economically, they'll be better off, everybody will be kinder to each other. So every year, they have the purge. It's 12 hours where anything is allowed. The powerful can prey on the vulnerable. You can steal. You can rob. You can murder. None of it's off limits. You're like, that's a crazy movie. Yeah, it's crazy. And they've actually had four of them, I think. Now, I read about it uh, in an article in Forbes magazine, believe it or not. Forbes magazine actually found the concept so interesting and intriguing, the socio, sociological implications, that they actually wrote an article on what would happen if the purge was real in economic terms, okay? So let me read to you what Forbes said would happen economically if the purge was real. In short, we could expect that a real-life purge would amplify economic and racial inequality, which is the opposite of what the movie initially says is going to happen. It would habituate significant numbers of economic and political elites towards constant violent predation. In other words, it would actually make people more violent and thinking about how they could do violence in those 12 hours, not the other way around. 
It would create tiered insurance systems that would further advantage wealthier citizens, businesses, and communities. And then at the end, they say, in addition to being terrifying, destructive, and evil. All right? Their whole thing was about economics. All right? That's what Forbes kind of writes on. Economics and how bad it would be for the economy if this actually, if there was no laws, even for just 12 hours, all right? And they get to talking about the economics, and they still can't even stop themselves from talking about just the sociological implications in addition to being terrifying destructive and evil. Can you imagine a life with no laws? I mean, at first, like, man, what if we didn't have any laws? Like, I could drive as fast as I wanted to. Like, nobody could tell me if I got to wear a mask or don't wear, like, I can go wherever I want to go. I can go across any border, da, 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 da. Like, right? We, we think, what if we had no laws? Like, at first blush, you're like, that would be awesome. And then when you actually see a movie like Purge, you're like, that would be terrifying. Why? Because as Romans 13 explains to us, government is actually set up by God. Because God is always on the side of order, not chaos. Uh, N.T. Wright actually says it best. He says, God wants his world to be ordered, not chaotic. In a world where evil flourishes when unchecked, some government is always necessary. So if I'm going to boil down all of Romans 13, 1 to 7, a very nuanced, deep, there's so much I'd love to be able to dive into here more, uh, it would be there's two principles. One, God is the pinnacle. And so we always obey God over what any government is going to tell us. However, government is ordained by God to help bring order. And so therefore, we are intended to submit ourselves whenever, wherever we possibly can. It's the purge principle. Lawlessness is actually not in our best interest. It leads to chaos, not to the order that God desires. God ordained it for our benefit to punish evil, right? To keep order rather than chaos. And for the sake of the gospel, we ought to then honor those that God has put in positions of authority. However, because God is at the pinnacle of authority, we always honor his word and his will above anything else. And in his word, as a part of his will, is for the strong and the powerful, just as Christ does, to stand up and be a voice for the weak and the vulnerable. It's one of the things that God demands of us. So in whatever area of influence you have, whatever area of power you have, whatever area of privilege you have, you are to, as Christ, who spent himself on us, spend yourself on behalf of the poor, the powerless, and the vulnerable. It is what God desires for us. Now, um, I would love to say so much more about this, okay? But I'm going to stop, partly because you're like, it's Mother's Day, bro. Did you know that when you put this out? Like, it, like that's not a Mother's Day sermon. I get it. I understand. But God said, you still got to teach it because it's in my word and my people need to know. However, there's more that he actually writes after verse 7. Let me continue reading. And remember, when Paul writes this letter, he's not just simply writing chunks that we're supposed to pull out and set aside. They all flow together. Keep reading. In verse 8, he says this. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And what other? 
other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You see what Paul cared about? He cared about their Christian testimony. He cared about the gospel of Christ. Paul was writing in first century Rome that was being ruled by a tyrant. Dude was crazy, all right? Wound up doing some just brutally awful, terrible things. Way, okay, I shouldn't say way worse than anything that's happened in America. There's been some bad stuff that's happened in America. But a dude was unhinged and unchecked, all right? And Paul writes, and he wasn't elected, all right? Nobody have an opportunity to, to, to elect them. It's just he thought he was there because the gods put him there. In fact, he thought he was a god. Paul writes into that environment. And what Paul says is, hey, you need to understand something. God's ultimately in control. God even put Caesar in power, and he'll take him out if he needs to, all right? He says, I want you to care more about the gospel, letting people understand what it means to have a relationship with me and what it looks like for them to help me bring my kingdom from heaven to earth, okay? Now, that meant that the powerful needed to stand up against or for the powerless, That meant that those with privilege had to stand up and protect the vulnerable. That was the call. That's what Christians were actually known for in the first and second centuries. a beautiful, beautiful thing. But God wants us to understand that his desire is not only for government to do what it's supposed to do, but for Christians to actually stand up then and love neighbor as self because that is going to help people understand that Jesus truly is God's son. Now, I finished one piece to take us into the next piece because, not simply because it's Mother's Day, but actually because it's something that I think God is starting to stir in the hearts of this church. In just a second, I'm going to invite another couple from the local group that I get to participate in. Eric and Emily, you saw them uh, in, in a couple of those pictures. Eric was a dude going. You see, God has... Well, let me back up. Uh, You guys can come on up while I'm talking. Um, Last time they sat on the stools and they were so low, and I had my stool up, and they made me put my stool down, which I said, that's how they usually are, always bringing me down to their level. (laughs) I'm bringing them up to mine now. Um, One of the things that we have been talking about as a church is what does God have for us as a church to engage in? How are we supposed to reflect Christ in our community, right? So we do Kenoshe. We love Kenoshe. We love that school. We love the teachers of that school. There is an awful lot of vulnerable kids that attend that school. Those teachers are working hard hours uh, trying to do so many different things. And so we want to love on those teachers, on that staff. Uh, We want to love on them so they can love on those kids. We want to love on those kids whenever we have the privilege and opportunity to do so because we believe that Jesus Christ just transforms and changes lives. And so we want to be a light. That's why we love Ken O'Shea. It's one of the things that we invest in. Your generosity allows us to do that. We also are passionate about our our, uh, relationship with ICCF, Inner City Christian Federation. Uh, They are the number uh, one uh, organization here in Grand Rapids, nonprofit that is working to help 
deal with the housing crisis. For low-income families, low-income housing is really, really difficult. All the folks that own homes and you're all so excited because your home value keeps like exploding and exploding, you're like, this is amazing. It is amazing for those of us that own homes, but for all the folks that don't own homes, they're getting priced out of the market and everything's becoming more and more expensive. And ICCF helps step into that gap. That's why we support them. That's why we try to get, gather around them. That's one of the partner organizations we have. We've got a couple of others as well, but as we've been praying and processing, just as a young church, what is God calling our church to do? What are the, that thing that we're supposed to be kind of the tip of the spear, right? And one of those things that we have recognized is that foster adoption and refugee care is just woven throughout the stories of so many people, so many families within our church. I know of, uh, I think, five or six, I just found out about two more this morning, that are actually in process to get licensed to become either foster parents or to adopt, like currently happening right now. I know of numerous other families that have already adopted and have stepped into these difficult, beautiful, amazing spaces. And so as we've been praying, we have just sensed that God has said, this is one of the things that I have specifically been calling TLC to step into. And so Eric and Emily uh, are going to share a little bit of their stories with us today. I'm going to kind of interview them. Um, We've got some questions. You can throw those questions up. That way they can see them. Uh, Because in five days, Eric and Emily are actually heading down along with Austin and Olivia. Austin's on staff with us here. uh, To the uh, U.S.-Mexico border outside of McAllen, Texas, Reynosa, Mexico. For us to actually get some literal feet on the ground, eyes, hands, hearts, uh, to see what's happening um, there. Uh, It's an overwhelming, difficult, complex problem. And we are simply saying, God, we feel like foster adoption and refugee care is one of the things that you are calling our church towards. Some of you have already like completely dove in, uh, This as a church is kind of us beginning to like dip our feet in the water. And so as a church, we're sending them. They're kind of going as our missionaries, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about why they're going. Um, But before that, you need to hear a little bit of kind of how they began to engage here. So uh, how did your journey into foster care happen, and how has foster care changed you? Kind of hit that, I guess. Emily made me. I didn't make him. (laughs) Just Emily made me. It's true. Are you on? Am I on? Yeah, you, you are. Totally no, there are. you go. Okay. I'm just kidding. She kind of made me. <laughs> uh, so actually, right after Eric and I graduated from college, we moved over to France because he was going to play basketball there. And we didn't speak one word of French. We really didn't know anything about the culture. I had, I had zero, really zero. And um, that was a really uncomfortable experience, (laughs) really, really hard. But through the hospitality of the French people who were amazing to us, um, we really experienced the power of welcome and how incredible that was, how comforting, how life-giving. I think some people can relate. It was amazing. Um, But... Yeah, so that kind of set the stage for us as far as stepping into refugee foster care specifically. Uh, yeah, I was there my first year by myself, and I semi-educated, not super educated. Um, you, it's a helpless feeling. It is. I couldn't buy food for myself. I my first my first bread that I bought, I had to point to what I wanted at the bread shop and put a bunch of money in my hand and ask the nice lady not to rob me because. 
like, it's funny, but like that's just, that's how it was. You were on an island, surrounded by people, but on an island. So it's hard. So any little bit of welcome was amazing and appreciated. Um, my, I, and his, we kind of, his, his nickname was, uh, this is pretty awesome though. Please don't. La Vanille Gorille. The Vanilla Gorilla. That's his nickname in France. Like that's, <laughs> that's not a good nickname. That is a pretty awesome nickname though. I really so. hate it. <laughs> she came up with it. Don't listen to it. Um, I, I've been praying about what to say um, on this. Really, the, I think what God wants to say, my, my journey into this was overcoming a list of fears. It wasn't, I'm all the way in, I want to do this, I'm called to do this. It was, this is why not, this is why not, this is why not, this is why not, this is why not. Honestly, that is what it was. Financially, does this make sense? You have four kids in your house. You have one income. You're going to have two or three more in. No. This is from Christian, non-Christian friends, family members, really, really saying, this is, I'm not sure about this. And my own self. Um, I have healthy kids at my house. I am bringing in traumatized kids in one way or another. What will that look like for my healthy kids? Should I protect them? Should I not? Um, and God really was gracious enough to answer each one of those slowly and encouragingly and keep the ball moving to a spot where in hindsight I can look back, back at all those fears and say, well, that was a no-brainer decision. In the middle of it, it was not. Mm -hmm. In the middle of it, it was, I'm not sure this is right for me. Looking back, I can see that those fears would have sentenced three kids to if not death, um, a really hard life on a refugee camp where there was some security and some food. We, I remember when they were working through this. Um, we've known Eric and Emily for a, a number of years now. And there's so many reasons that very well-meaning people were telling them, this is, probably not, this is probably not a good idea. You don't have a, your house isn't that big. You already got you know, kids sharing rooms. How are you going to add any? Um, we do cram them in. <laughs> you do cram them in. It's true. <laughs> uh, they had, you know, like financially, like this is not going to be talking about like your own children. Like, are you really, don't, if you love Jesus, Jesus is giving you a mission of your kids. All right. You're lucky enough. He's giving you four biological kids and that's your mission. And so you need to wait until maybe when they're gone, maybe, but how did you work through that? And Eric, you're not like a... Yeah, go ahead. Be honest. It's fine. It's fine. Go <laughs> Call it out. Call it out. Unequipped. <laughs> I didn't want to know. Yeah, that was way kinder than the word I was going to use. Oh, yeah, but... good. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, how did you guys wrestle with that? You know? Those genuine fears. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that God was really gracious during that time and really repeatedly showing us um, that this was something that he was calling us to. I mean, it was so obvious that um, at one point when we were filling out all the paperwork, um, we kind of looked at each other. I'm like, you know, what if we just don't? <laughs> and Eric was like, I'm actually more afraid not to do this mm. than I am to do it because it was just, he was really gracious in showing us that, he wanted us to take that step forward. So, um, yeah, it was really trusting. All right. If you say that this is a go, then okay. So what was we're, that? We're I, do it. I won't say kicking and screaming, but he, he, drew, he basically drug me into it to a spot where, <laughs> awesome me, all my good colors are coming out. I was like, fine. 
I'll do it. I'll say yes. But you know my limitations, all of them. And there's a lot. So the end game is yours. End deal is yours. Whatever the outcome is, it is all on you. I will, I'll say yes, but basically then after, after that, I'm out. <laughs> it sounds selfish and awful, and it's totally true. And you know what God told me back? He's like, yep, that's all I needed. That is all I need from you. It completely redefined my definition of success as a Christian. I will take care. And he's taking care of all of it. So not only in the decision to move forward, but the moments where it's like, oh, my word, this is hard. This, this, was this right? Him just continually meeting. Yeah, I got it. I got it. You were, your success was in the yes. I got it. We're going. What, what, was the, what was the turning point from you to move from all the fears, all the people saying, hey, this is probably not a good idea, and you kind of agreeing with them? <laughs> to saying, okay, God's saying something. I need to say that initial yes. Oh, boy. For me personally, the, the, camp, the straw that broke the camel's back was, we are looking at this at 20, in 2015. I remember God put an article really just straight in front of me on uh, ISIS advance in Iraq. And an American journalist went into people who, flew, who fled, mothers and kids who fled away from them, talking about their experience. Um, and she just noticed, like, well, where are the girls? Where are the 9 to 11-year-old girls? I don't see any out here. Um, oh, shoot. I did this first service, too. Um, she found out that the first ones identified by advancing ISIS are 9 to 11-year-old girls who are quickly grabbed to be able to be awarded to uh, military people in ISIS who did a really good job. So parents, you, can, you know what that means. So there were no 9 to 11-year-old girls because they had been awarded to military heroes for ISIS. At the time, I had a 9-year-old girl in my house. Oh. Who's here? I knew her hopes and her dreams and her smile. Her name is Maislin. Um, and God just gave me in an instant a picture of he sees Maislin the same way he sees the girl who's just been awarded um, to an organization. And he loves them the same way. So he's, that was my push. Like, okay, I'll, st I'll step in. <clears throat> so, <laughs> sorry. Um, all right, how did, you, how did you move from, we'll step into to, uh, foster care, and, and in your particular case, uh, it, it was connected to uh, refugee foster care. Um, maybe tell a little bit of that story. Uh, do we have a, Jay, do we have a pick? Of our people? Yeah. Do we, maybe? I no. don't know. Oh. That's okay. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, okay, we do, we do. There's one. That, that's, that's the Jolders Ma. That's half of them. That's some of them. Some of them. Some of them. There's another one. There's some over there, too. There's, yeah, and there's some hanging out in the back <laughs> as well. Um, talk a little bit about your, your journey into foster care. Uh, yours happened to be refugee foster care and why, mm -hmm. and then how that led you into, like, uh, um, refugee advocacy. Yeah, so um, refugee foster care, actually, because I literally read on Bethany's website through a school newsletter, uh, you know, that Bethany was looking for people who have experience in building cross-cultural relationships. And I was like, oh, well, that's us. This was literally the year that we moved home from France. Um, 
And we got matched with um, two really, really the best, and <laughs> now I'm going to cry, most beautiful girls and their brother, um, because we spoke French, and then they got here, and they didn't even speak French. Like, <laughs> Congo. <laughs> they're from the Congo, so they're I like, oh, they speak French. A it's a French bit. country, right. and you speak French. And they're yeah. like, no, you, neither one. That's so uh, we got the girls and Remy, their brother, who was resettled as an adult because he was a little bit older. Um, and, yeah, that was, that was how we got matched with them. And then what was I going to So how did you get into then refugee oh, advocacy? Oh, sure, so, yeah. They're amazing. Like, I'm just, like, they're, they're, these are amazing people, okay, that are part of our church. So you probably, probably, maybe you've seen them do announcements once or twice and would have no idea about all the rest oh, of the stuff. But um, they, <laughs> you are, though. I hate them. Uh, they don't only, they, so they did enter into foster care, which turned also into adoption as well and their family. Um, but then that also led into advocating for refugees, which is not something I think you had ever thought you were probably going to do growing up in Iowa and Minnesota, yeah, but no. explain. Um, yeah, so immigration wasn't even, you know, our political views didn't play any sort of part in us choosing to do this, like not, not even close. And so when we got the girls, that was in 2015, and, you know, immigration at that point was becoming like this really hot topic. And so... I just tried to educate myself and um, learn a little bit more about it. And um, yeah, in, in, at the same time, Gracia was attending a Congolese church downtown Grand Rapids, which I did not say this in the first service, and I should have. This is fun fact. Um, Grand Rapids has the largest population of resettled Congolese people in the nation. Huh. So... And that was true at one point. I'm actually not sure if that's still true today, but there, there are many. And so um, we were getting to know some of these families and some of the kids and starting to somewhat do life with them. And, you know, so as the mother of immigrant children and then um, having friends who are refugees, you, you really want to advocate for them and you want to step in and um, and help in whatever way you can. So, yeah, that just opened a door to a lot of other opportunities to just try to be that power of welcome for people. So uh, there's two questions that we had up there. Um, last time I tried to ask the fourth question first, and then Emily said, can I answer the fifth one instead? Yes, you may. Uh, so one is, should, should, is everybody called mm -hmm. to foster or adopt? Uh, and what do you do when it gets messy? How do you, de how do you deal with the mess? And I mean, I'm assuming it probably does. Yeah, it's not a matter of if, it's when. So, yeah, it, it is a mess. It gets very messy. And, um, you know, when we first started doing this, there was a lot of stuff for me personally that was kind of coming up to the surface that um, was pretty ugly and stuff that needed to come up to the surface. And it continues to, to do so. So, you know, self-centeredness and bias and um, you name it. At some point, I was probably feeling bad about it. But at the same time, um, I, God gave me this picture of his hands behind me, and the message was, I know you don't see this in yourself right now, but I do, and I'm with you, and you can do this. And he just really gently and graciously pushing me forward, like, it's, it's okay, you can do this. Um, so, which kind of leads into, you know, there were moments um, when stuff got really hard and messy where I, it's kind of my personality to be like, oh my gosh, you know, am I doing something wrong or am I not supposed to, to be in the situation? And um, 
where was I going with that? Um, you know, he, I had to lean into that and kind of work through that a little bit. And he, he gave you scriptures too, right? Like, yeah, man, I, I was really diving into scripture, like, is this where I'm supposed to be? And time and time again, he would just, in his grace, show me, yes, this is where I want you, and this is what you were called to do, and not, and not just me, but all of us as Christians. So for the question, you know, is every single person supposed to be an adoptive parent or a foster parent? Um, I always want to say yes to that, always, like I, I do. Right, empty it out. <laughs> yep, yep. But... Um, Really, I, I don't know that everyone is supposed to be specifically an adopted parent or a foster parent, but in that arena as Christians, yes, absolutely. I think that we are, Scripture is really clear that we're called um, to take part in that. So the thing is, I think, is just trusting God that um, because he's called us to that, each person has something that they can contribute in that area and in that issue. I don't know what it is for each person, but um, I think everybody should just kind of lean into that and kind of seek that out. I'll speak into that just really quickly. It's hard for me right now to like put my mind where I, when I started because now he's been gracious enough to have a little hindsight and look back. So it's hard to see when they came up. Um, I don't know if everybody's called to adopt. I know that as Christians, we are the most equipped people on the planet to do it. And I can say that with 100% confidence. Um, and the Mexico thing, which we'll get into, <sighs> what you do for the least of these, you do for me. I don't know anywhere else in Scripture where you, that <laughs> is a direct favor to Jesus, <laughs> who did way more than that for us. Like, that is a, it's a drop in the bucket, but for, to, even to have that, number one. But you're talking about going in for the vulnerable, and it's messy, and it's hard, and it's out of your comfort zone, and you're not equipped to do it. That is not a restriction for God. When you go into the mess, we as Christians go in with the example already been set for us, with somebody who's done way more for us than anything we're trying to step into. We go with, we put our faith with our money, where, where our mouth is. The same power that raised Christ from the dead literally lives inside of us. So any mess we're going into, we bring that in. Yeah. When I step into that, that's not Eric. It, Eric won't scare anybody or scare evil away or fix anything. I won't. God inside and behind Eric walking into that and taking care of it, forget about it. Yeah. Forget about it. And we have that. And I'm telling, I don't know, I've had this vision of TLC. I, I get to be part of our benevolence team here as well. And I've seen members go into vulnerability, whether it's temporary vulnerability because of acute things that have happened with job loss or whatever. When Christians dive in completely for the sake of somebody else with no regard for themselves. Number one, it is the most beautiful I've seen those individuals in the history of me knowing them. And number two, the way God flexes in will reinforce your faith more than anything else that you've done because you're giving him space to flex. And he's waiting. This church is a powder keg. I'm telling you, it's a powder keg. I don't know where he's going to take it. I don't, I don't know if it's going to be adoption. I hope it's adoption. I don't know if it's going to be Mexico. I don't know. But with that bringing what he's put inside of us, I, I'm, I don't, I'm super excited. Um, so I want to I wanna just show you a couple of quick picks. Um, Eric and Emily are actually going to be heading down. I'm not going to have you read that. Sorry. I know. It's okay. Uh, 
Eric and Emily are heading down to the border along with Austin and Olivia. Um, there is an organization there uh, led by a lady uh, named um, Mrs. Alma Ruth. Alma Ruth. Mm -hmm. And she's thinking amazing and awesome. Um, this, is, uh, this is a camp right outside McAllen, Texas in Reynosa. It's, uh, it's super close to the International Bridge. Um, there's over 500 uh, uh, Central American refugees that are just waiting. Um, many of them are trying to, to come with as much money as they've been able to earn, uh, so all, all of their life savings, uh, just to try to get uh, the drug cartels, uh, pay them enough money so that they will float them across the river. I think there's one more picture. Um, those two dudes that look like they're helping, they're, 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 those are, they, they work for the drug cartels. Um, they're the ones that are bringing uh, these kids, these, these three little kids across, two little boys and a little girl there. And uh, that's happening day and night. Um, uh, there is one little story that uh, Alma had just uh, shared with Emily this morning in an email that came in uh, of a pastor who was dropping off his daughter, asking uh, Alma to pray for her that she will get across safely because it's the only, it's the only option he sees. This, friends, is a brother in Christ, a pastor who sees no other option because uh, of the situation that they're in. So um, we want to pray for them as they uh, uh, head down there, just as they kind of go as our representatives, say, God, what are you, is there something you're calling us to? We don't know. Um, we don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but we figured this was one of the things God was asking us to do, and we're going to continue to seek God's face. So um, we're going to sing one more song after this. Uh, if you would just stand with me and, and uh, just reach out your hands so we can pray. Um, over Eric and Emily and Austin and Olivia. Father God, we just lift up our um, sister, our brother uh, to you, God, as they seek to be your hands and feet. Um, Jesus, we want, we want to live our lives the way that you lived your life for us. You spent it all so that we could experience the glory that you have. God, we want to do the same for others, especially those, God, that are our brothers and sisters. Let us not shrink back from something that seems overwhelming. It is overwhelming to us, but it is not overwhelming to you. And so we put ourselves in your care, and we ask for the boldness and courage to step forward as your hands and feet so that we might love others as you have loved us, that we would fulfill the law of God by loving others as we would desire to be loved. Thank you, Father, for loving us first. We love because of that love. It's in your name, Jesus. We